0: When I was in uh, high school, I was a part of a youth group. Uh, My parents went to a church, and so I was obligated to go every Wednesday night to our high school uh, youth group, and we did what youth groups do. We sang songs, we had fun, played games, listened to a good teacher, broke out into small groups, and uh, most of the kids that were a part of my youth group uh, were kids that were going, their parents were going to the church. One night, however, I show up at youth group, and we start the beginning of the process when in walks through the back door, the least- unexpected person I could have imagined. His name was Jeremy, and he was the bully at our school. He actually lived on my street. I experienced his bully firsthand, but everybody would have told you at our high school, if there was anybody who would never show up a youth group, it would be Jeremy. And so here we are in our youth group, and I'm thinking, what is he doing here? He doesn't belong in our insider youth group little party. He's an outsider and we literally didn't know what to do. That's a little bit how I think the disciples probably felt in John chapter 12 with another group of outsiders who come and kind of interrupt their insider party with their desire to see Jesus. If you would, take your Bible, turn it to John 12 with me as we prepare and get ready for that. If you didn't bring your own Bible, we say it every week, but we have read Bibles in the seat in front of you there. We Encourage you every week to be a first-hander in God's Word. We are walking through the Gospel of John together as a church. You can find John 12 about four-fifths of the way back in your Bible there. We're going to be starting in verse 20. Just to get you caught up, right now in our church, we are in the middle of a series that we are calling Encountering Christ, where from February all the way till now, with a little break in summer, we are just walking through the Gospel of John, looking at different encounters that Jesus had with people uh, in his ministry, and we're asking a pretty simple question. What can we learn from those encounters today? What can we learn from the encounters Jesus had with people in our lives today? And if you're following on your notes, if you choose to use message notes, in the encounter this morning, Jesus invites some outsiders to become insiders. Jesus invites some outsiders to become insiders. Now, what is going to be most shocking about this isn't the fact that some outsiders wanted to see Jesus. What's most shocking is how he tells them that's going to happen. Now, just to give you some setting, hopefully you're there, but just to give you some setting. In John 12, things could not be going any better for the disciples. They are living life right now. If you recall, in John chapter 11, Jesus did that itty bitty miny miracle where he raised someone from the dead. You know Lazarus? He's like the big man on campus right now all throughout Israel as a result of that. In fact, in the section just previous to the one we're looking at, which Jeff preached on on Palm Sunday, we're told that Jesus, on his way to celebrate the Passover feast in Jerusalem, makes his way down the streets. And what's happening? People are lining the streets, screaming and yelling, Hosanna! Blessed is what? The King of Israel. In other words, they're declaring, He's here! The one we've been waiting for, the long-expected Messiah, has finally arrived. He has come to kick some Roman you-know-what and get him out of our country and establish God's kingdom once again in Israel like in the time of David. So they are just screaming his name. Now, I love to put myself in these stories. Imagine that you're one of the disciples at this point. Life would be good, right? I mean, have you ever like the friend with the star quarterback in high school? You're like, yeah, I'm with him. He and I are good buddies. We go way back. Maybe I can get you to meet him someday. I have a feeling that's what the disciples were like. Yeah, I've been with him for three years. And actually, he gave us a special name. I'm called an apostle. (laughs) Maybe I can get a meeting with you someday. Life is good. Of course, in a few days, we know what's going to happen. They're going to be totally denying ever knowing him. But at the present moment, life is good. That is until some outsiders come and ruin their little insider party. Look at John chapter 12, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks <laughs> among those who went up to worship at the feast. Here's the question. What are Greeks doing at a Jewish party? They don't belong here. Greeks at a Jewish party party, if you're falling on your notes, to the Jews, Greeks, do not belong in God's kingdom. Just like when I saw Jeremy walk through those doors at our youth group. When these Greeks show up, they're thinking, what in the world are they doing here? What do they have to do with us? What do they have to do with Jesus? Of course, we know as we've been studying the Gospel of John that Jesus did not come just to be the Redeemer of Israel, did he? He came to be so much more. He came to be the Savior of the world. But the disciples could not understand this yet. It would take the Holy Spirit to reveal that part to them, right? Right now, they're thinking, this group of outsiders does not belong in our little insider gathering. And to me, this is where their story begins to get a little bit humorous. Look at verse 21 on your notes there. Let's read that out loud. It says, They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, We would like to see Jesus. You might want to underline that. What a powerful statement that is, huh? If you've been with us throughout this study in John, you know what most people have been asking? You know what their request has been? Show us a sign, Jesus. Prove to us you are who you say you are. Then maybe we'll believe. These outsiders come. They show up and what do they ask? We want to see They get it. The insiders don't even get it the whole time, but these outsiders come and they get it. We want to see Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. That word that we kind of miss uh, because we don't read it from the original language is actually they keep on asking Philip. They won't leave Philip alone. It's like an ongoing thing. It wasn't like this one-time thing, like, hello, sir, we'd like to see Jesus. No, they're like following him around. We'd like to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. We want to see... Where are you going? Come back here. We want to see Jesus. And Philip doesn't know what to do. Now, I don't know why they went to Philip. Maybe he's like the personal secretary of Jesus or something. You've got to go through Philip to get to Jesus. Or more than likely, it's because he had a Greek name, a Jew with a Greek name. And so they thought, maybe he'll be sympathetic to us. But Philip has no clue what to do. Look at verse... I love this. Look at verse 22. This is what we'd all do. Philip went to tell Andrew. What do I do? I don't know. And both of them, Andrew and Philip in turn, told Jesus, can't you just picture this? You tell them. No, you tell them. They're Greeks. I know. But he always wants to see people that other people don't want to see. So I think we should tell them. And of course, that's exactly what happens here, right? Whether it is a Samaritan woman at a well, A crippled man by a pool? A man born blind from birth? If you're falling on your notes, Jesus always makes time for the outsider. Jesus always makes time for the outsider. Why is it that I'm always surprised by the kind of people who want to see Jesus? I shouldn't be. For in God's kingdom there is neither Jew nor Greek. Male nor female, bully nor youth group nerd. All are one in Christ Jesus, amen? Jesus came to break down these barriers that we erect as human beings. His kingdom is open to everyone. Friends, just like I was shocked to see Jeremy show up at our youth group, this would have been shocking for the disciples. But not as shocking as what he is about to tell them. See, If you're following on your notes there, at their request, Jesus reveals what it takes to truly see him. To these Greeks, Jesus reveals what it takes to truly see him. And they're not going to like the answer. They're not going to like what it takes. Now before we get there, notice how Jesus responds to this request from the Greeks. Look at verse 23. At first glance, this seems to make no sense. It's like, are we dealing with a totally different situation? It says, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. what? What? What is he talking about? They want to see you and you're going off onto some random hour thing. Well, this isn't random at all, actually. You know, throughout John, people have been prodding Jesus, pushing Jesus to reveal himself. And what has his response been throughout? My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Wait, in the moment these Greeks show up, though, These outsiders show up. He says, my hour is here. Why? Because Jesus knows the scriptures and he knows that hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah prophesied this very thing that the Messiah would not just be the Jewish Messiah. He would be the Messiah for all nations. Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 56. I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest. And who hold fast to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices, because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcast of Israel says, "I will bring others too, besides my people, Israel." He quoted that, by the way, in the second Temple cleansing in Mark 12, and here he knows, with the arrival of these outsiders who want to become insiders. My hour has come. It was the Father's plan. It's the story of the Bible. It's not an Old and a New Testament. It's a First and Second Testament. It's the whole thing leading up to this. All are going to be welcome into God's kingdom. And if you're following in your notes, when Jesus refers to his hour, he is saying nothing now stands between Jesus and the cross. Nothing now stands be- between Jesus and the cross. The arrival of these Greeks is like a trigger. It's begun. And everything we're going to look at in the rest of our study in John, it is all leading to that moment. In fact, look at how he describes this in the rest of verse 23. The hour has come for what? The son of man to be glorified. Now, I wish we could have been there for this. Because if he, when he spoke those words, I guarantee you that a hush would have fallen across the crowd. Did he just say what I think he said? Did he just call himself the son of man? See, the Jewish people, they know the scriptures, and they know that Jesus was referring to Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel has a prophecy about one like the son of a man. In fact, let's look at it together. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Did he just say what I think he did? This is it. He's saying he's the one. He's the one that is going to destroy these Romans to kick them out of our country, to establish our kingdom again. You see, for the Jews, if you're following on your notes, for the Jews, the Son of Man was supposed to bring conquest. The Son of Man was supposed to bring conquest. And of course, we know now, Jesus did bring conquest, but not in the way that they expected. They were expecting swords and power. And Jesus says, I have come for a totally different purpose, for a totally different kind of conquest, and it's going to go against your expectations. In fact, read how he describes his conquest. Out loud in verse 24 with me. It says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Where are the swords? Where are the thrones? Where's the power? Where's the victory? Why are you talking about a kernel of wheat and the D word of all things? Death? Death? What kind of glory is this? What is he talking about? Well, we know now, he's talking about the glory of the cross, isn't he? The glory of the cross. You see, Jesus was not the kind of king that people expected. He wasn't. And here he tells them that he is going to rule, but his rule will be won through death. If you're following on your notes, he's saying in his death, Jesus gives life to all who believe. In his death, Jesus gives life to all who believe. You see, his conquest is the conquest of death itself. Amen to that? The illustration he gives, it's so simple, isn't it? In fact, all of you should have underneath your seats somebody in your row. There should be a bucket there with some kernels of corn there. I wish you would take that out if you would. Make sure everybody in your row has one kernel of corn that you just hold on to that. Now, I know he's talking about wheat, but we live in corn country. Give me a break. It's the same idea. Poetic license, right? Now, when you hold a kernel of wheat or a kernel of corn in your hand, hold it right now, look at it, you cannot see what is inside of it. In fact, here's a picture of a kernel of wheat. I want you to notice particularly the the bottom part there, that, that thing called the germ. You know what the germ is? The germ is like millions of little opportunities for fruit to be born, right? It just needs to be cast out. It needs to be set forth. Now, how does that happen? How does more wheat produce? That grain of wheat has to die. It has to be placed in a tomb, so to speak. And when the body breaks, life begins to spill forth. Same thing with that corn. Each corn has the potential, each kernel of corn has a potential in it for millions of other pieces. Of corn. Jesus is telling the crowd listen, I am going to bring conquest, but not in the way you're thinking. My conquest will reproduce life for millions of people. That's how I'm going to rule. I'm going to rule through my death. I'm going to be planted inside of a tomb. And through my death on the cross, I will bring victory. I will bring millions of people into my kingdom. Now, I know 2,000 years later, when we talk about the cross, we're used to it. But I just want you to put yourself in these people's shoes. What do you think they'd be thinking right now? If your expectations were for a king that was going to bring military conquest, and he starts talking about seeds and death, you'd be majorly let down. This is why later the Apostle Paul describes the cross as a stumbling block to Jews. And foolishness to Greeks it still is today, isn't it? I mean, think about how ludicrous it is that we gather here on Sunday mornings to celebrate the fact that we believe a man took upon himself all our sin, all our shame, all our sorrow. He bore it on a cross in his death and it's through his death that we now live. That's ridiculous. That's naive. It's even intolerant. And yet, it is the centerpiece of our faith, isn't it? It is the centerpiece of our very life. In fact, in verses 27 on, Jesus goes on to describe exactly the kind of victory his death achieves for us. We're going to skip ahead to verse 27 and just look at this. Let's look at verse 27. It says, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. No. It was for this very hour that I came. I love that. It's a transparent moment in the life of Jesus there. We always, I don't know what you picture. Fully human though. Fully human. He is dreading the cross. Not because of the physical pain that he's going to endure, which is great. Because of what it means. It means on his death, he is taking all of our death, all of our sin on his shoulders and he will be separated from his father on our behalf. He's not looking forward to it, but then in verse 28, as he does so often, he says, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. Now, we throw that word around a lot at church, don't we? It's one of those church words, glorify. God, we glorify your name. We sing it. What does that actually mean? Can I give you an idea here what to think about every time we say the word glorify? You can also use the word spotlight. Glorify comes from the Greek word doxa, which means brightness. Beautiful. And so when Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, he's saying, Take the spotlight off me so that others may see you. Glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. You see, Jesus already knew who he was, he knew why he had come. He didn't need to hear this from the Father, but he knows others do. A kingdom of death? Now look at verse 31. This is what the cross accomplishes. This is the fruit that is born. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Who cares about the Romans? Nations come and go, don't they? Rulers live and die. Jesus says, I have come to defeat the ruler of this world. Satan himself. But when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. There's the fruit. There's my conquest. When I die and I'm lifted up on that cross, I will draw all who will believe upon me into a relationship with me. That's the fruit of death. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. When he dies, think of that seed you got in your hand. He's saying millions of possibilities of germination have just taken place. That's the kind of victory I'm talking about here. Friends, if you're falling on your notes, it is only in the cross that we can see Jesus. It is only in the cross that we can see Jesus. Why are we here 2,000 years later after this guy lived? Is it because he did some pretty awesome miracles? It's not why we're here. Is because he was like the most amazing teacher ever, which he was? No, I mean, we, we wouldn't give up Sunday every week to just listen to some guy's good teaching, would we? Why are we here still? It's because of the cross. It's because of the cross of Jesus Christ, who when he was planted in his death, gave us life and victory. It is ours to have friends. Jesus knew if you're following the only way to glory, the only way to true glory was to die. I know this is some deep stuff right now, but theologians actually call this the paradox of the cross, the paradox of Christianity. It's ultimately why so many people at the end of his life began to leave him and desert him, right? He's got all the crowds right now. But from this moment on, they are going to leave him, including some of his best friends. Why? They can't understand How can death bring life? How can death bring a victory? Now at this point, we have to ask the question that this encounter begs of us. Do you want to guess what the question is? Do you want to see Jesus? Do you? If so, get ready. It's going to involve death going to involve death in fact if you're following on your notes to see Jesus we must follow his example into death not just his death our death as well if you want to see Jesus it's going to mean some dying read verse 25 out loud with me on your notes here it says the man who loves his life will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life now up till this point Jesus has been talking about his own impending death right Now he's stepping on some toes here. Whoa, 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 whoa. You want me to die too? You expect me to die in order to live? He applies this principle of this seed to your life and mine. This is the authentic mark of the gospel, by the way. If you're listening to a gospel on TV, on radio, from a pulpit, in a book that doesn't start with the cross, it's not the gospel. The gospel always starts with death. His death and our death. His death and our death. So many gospels today say you can have it all. This plus Jesus. Jesus says, Me or nothing. You need to die to that. Now listen, this doesn't mean we hate ourselves and walk around like Eeyore. (laughs) Uh, Death to myself. Dying. I'm dead. Nor does it mean we can't enjoy life. It's simply pointing to the unmistakable reality that we cannot value anything in this life above. Above what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. It is saying, I don't want anything more. I don't need anything more. He has supplied it all. If you're following on your notes, it is only when we die to ourselves that we can truly live. Have you heard that before? Do you know that? It is only when we die to ourselves that we can truly live, and this is so contrary to what you're hearing everywhere you go in this world right now. Every time you flip on the TV, it's a complete opposite message. Can I just tell you to be honest? This is so contrary to everything that's inside of me as well. This rages war against my flesh. Right? I want to defend myself. I want to protect myself, I want to puff up myself, I want to glorify myself, anything but die to myself. But Jesus says, do you want to see me? It's going to mean a death. Now for those who want to see Jesus, we know that actually the Bible talks about two deaths that we have to face. There's two deaths every person has to face. Number one, if you're following on your notes, there's every person who wants to see Jesus must recognize there is nothing we can do to earn glory. There is nothing we can do to earn glory, right? That is religion. Christianity is not religion. Christianity says you can't do anything good enough. There's there's no scale, There's no like, if I do this, this, and this, one day I'll meet Jesus in heaven, hopefully. The cross flies in the face of that and says, I did everything for you. All you need to do is receive it from me. Die to this idea that is being taught everywhere around the world that you can do enough good and earn a place with me in glory. That is not Christianity. Christianity is grace. Grace undeserved favor dying to myself so that christ may take up residence in my life and live that is what called paul's the mystery of the gospel christ in me in order for him to live in me though what has to happen i gotta die paul writes it this way in galatians 2 20 let's read this out loud together it says i have been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me make it as simple as possible. There was a day that Steve Patsy had to die in order that I might live. Erica, in her testimony, you got to hear it. She said, It felt like I went through a death and I was born again. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. In order to live, we must first die. Have you been crucified with Christ? Now for those of you who have, who have allowed Christ to take up residence in your life, you're probably well aware that our dying doesn't end there, though, does it? I wish it did. And yet the Bible is unmistakably clear that a second death awaits us. If you're falling on your notes, we must also, number two, daily pick up our cross and surrender to him daily pick up our cross and surrender to him. This is where the war on shallow Christianity is fought, right there. Daily picking up our cross, daily dying to self and surrendering to him. You know, as important as that one time death was, where Steve Patsy died and Christ took up residence in my life, I got to do that every day, sometimes every hour, sometimes every minute. Paul wrote it this way in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-one. I die every day. I mean that, brothers. Just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, sometimes I wonder if in the United States, we are settling for for a form of Christianity where the central message is about protecting ourselves instead of dying to ourselves. But Jesus flies in the face of that. He asks some pretty tough questions, doesn't he? He says, would you like to be rich? Yeah, that sounds pretty nice, huh? Well, then you first have to become poor in spirit. You want to be first? Yes, I love being first. You always get the best stuff first, right? Everybody else can get the leftovers. I want to be first. Then you must be willing to be last, he says. Ah, yuck. You want to rule? Sounds good. Then you must become a servant. You want to live life to the full? Yes! That's why I'm here. That sounds great. Then you must abandon your life completely and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put this so powerfully in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, when he wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. There are a number of examples of this I could mention in the Bible. Probably the most famous one is of the rich young ruler in Mark 10. Some of you are familiar with that story, right? This young man who has large amounts of money comes to Jesus and asks the question that people are still asking today, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And through a series of questions and conversations, Jesus gets down to the heart of the matter with this guy and says, one thing you lack, one thing you lack, Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. What is he thinking? He's letting the big fish get away, isn't he? Think about the money their ministry could have had. Jesus knew for this man to live, he must die to the one thing he wanted to hold on to so badly. And he couldn't let And friends, this is where I beg of you that you never let us at this church candy coat the cost of following Jesus. Never let us candy coat the cost of following Jesus. You see, we do have to give up everything to follow Him. And it's entirely possible that He will ask you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor if that's the thing that you refuse to die to. That He will ask you to choose Him over your family. That he will cause you to go to dangerous places to tell others about him. But we don't believe that today. At least we don't want to. We don't believe that following Christ involves a death, mostly because we're afraid of what it means. So we rationalize those passages away, don't we? Well, he doesn't really mean I'm supposed to sell everything. What he really means in that for me is, and at least we better pause right there and ask the question am I starting to redefine the gospel? Am I starting to redefine what it means to follow Jesus? David Platt, who wrote the book Radical, talks about this. Do you mind if I read an extended quote? Because this cut me to the core. When we don't believe following Jesus means dying to ourselves, he says, we are giving in to the dangerous temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist them into a version of Jesus we are more comfortable with. A nice, middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism. And who would never call us the way to give everything we have. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion. Jesus who doesn't want us declaring war on shallow Christianity. Does not infringe on our comforts because after all he loves us just the way we are. A Jesus who wants us to be, I love this, balanced. Who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes and who for that matter wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. But do you and I realize what we're doing at this point? We are molding Jesus into our image. And the danger now is that when we gather in church buildings to sing and lift up our hands and worship, we may not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we may be worshiping ourselves. Whew. It's a light message this morning, isn't it? Do you want to see Jesus? Do you want to see then it's going to mean death. Now, I know we've been talking about some of the big things we need to die to, but as I already mentioned, aren't there aren't those, those daily decisions we have to make? I mean, isn't this what it really boils down to for us as Christians? Uh, for example, I asked some of my friends some examples. Dying to self might mean, and here's what they responded to, it might mean thinking of my spouse more than I think of myself. Thinking about her needs over my needs or his needs over my needs. It might mean not needing to be the first person in line every time. Dying to self could look like that. Dying to self for me means turning the TV off and spending time with my kids or spending time in God's word. Dying to self means telling the truth even when it may put us in a bad light at work. Here's a great one. Somebody shared openly and honestly Dying to self means taking the phone call from that needy friend who I know is going to drain it out of me and who I'm so tempted to ignore when I see the name come up, but she needs me. That's an act of dying to self. Dying to self is turning down that promotion because money isn't everything. There are some things more important. Dying to self, for me, somebody said, is apologizing to my children when I make a mistake. That's tough. That's tough. Dying to myself is not making that purchase just because I want it. Dying to myself is seeing retirement as an opportunity for further ministry, not as a time to do nothing. That's a good one today. Here's one more. Dying to self means waiting for the Lord's timing for that promotion, for that friendship. Aren't we all waiting for something? We're all waiting for God to do something. What would it mean to die to self? To wait, to not take it up into my own hands. Can I just share with you some personal ones in my own life that I struggle with? Because I am not good at dying to self. Every time I stand up here on the stage, I need to die to my insecurity that you like what I say. Because you are not here to see me. You are here to see Jesus. I need to die to that. I need to die to the idea every day these thoughts creep into my mind that I deserve this. I'm entitled to that. God owes this to me. She owes this to me. He owes this to me. I've got to die to that way of thinking. I don't deserve anything. And how about this one? I think we all struggle with this one. I need to die to the need to always defend myself. When somebody says something wrong about me, I'm like on my haunches ready to attack, right? But maybe I need to die to the idea of I, I always need to be right I like how Jeff says, maybe I needs to be more important in my life to be relating rightly. I was convicted by this. I just finished a biography of a Christian man by the name of Watchman Nee, who's a famous Christian in China. And he tells a story of when uh, two farmers came to their chur- his church. And they tell a story of how they, had, they, were, they were good friends and they shared a, a rice paddy together. And they had created this little aqueduct in order to get water down into their field. And they discover that their neighbor had actually, in the middle of the night, went and siphoned off all of their water and used it for his rice field. Now, what immediately, what reactions immediately go, rise up in you there? That's not fair! Anger! Justice! They at least had the ability to pause and ask, you know, let's go ask our elders, the elders of the church, what we should do in this situation. So they go to the church, and the elders are like, oh, that's tough. Let's, let's look at what Jesus might have said about this. They're like, okay. So they come to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and where Jesus said, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What? Can we find something in the Old Testament, you know? (laughs) (laughs) What he really means by that is, all right, we're going to try it. So they get up the next morning before this other farmer has the chance to siphon off the water, and they do it for him. They water his rice field, and they do that every day for the next two weeks. This neighbor says nothing. He never admits to it. I didn't do anything wrong. Until two weeks into this, he finally stops him and says, Why are you doing this? He says, because Jesus told us to. You've got to tell me more about this Jesus. And that person was led into a relationship with Christ. What would have been your reaction? I don't think I would have been able to die to myself there. But if you belong to Jesus, every day is going to have those moments where you can pick up your cross and the question is, will you do it? Will you pick it up and follow him? You see, when we do, there's always this possibility, if you're following on your notes, that by dying to self, we may help others find life too. Remember that word glorify? Take the spotlight off me and put it on Jesus. That happens when we die to ourselves, and other people can see him then instead of us. Take my seed, take that kernel of corn and plant it that you might have life. You know, Jesus is not asking us to do anything he didn't do first, right? Look at verse 26 as we close. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Do you know the word Christian literally means follower of Christ? It's all we are. That's what we do. We follow Christ. Even if it means our death. Death to self. What could be better than what he says there? My Father will honor the one who does that. You have your kernel of corn still? You put it in your palm like this. Here's what this message comes down to. This is your life. And we have two choices. We can either be like this. I'm going to protect it. I'm going to keep it safe. I'm going to hold it on to myself might not ever amount to anything in the end, but whew, I love my kernel of corn. i got to have my kernel of corn. Or we allow Christ to open our hand, place our lives into his hand, even if it means death, death to self and trust. And when he plants it, when he plants it, that the opportunity for life increases tenfold. How many of these things are on one cob of corn? Hundreds. Can that ever happen if it's not first placed in the ground to die? You want to see Jesus? Do you want to see Jesus? As we close to see Jesus, we must surrender ourselves fully to him. Amen? We must surrender ourselves fully to him. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know why you had me teach this message, other than the fact that I'm no good at this. I probably need it more than anybody else in this room. This goes against everything in my nature. And yet you say it is the quickest way to life. We want to trust that. We want to believe that together this morning. We thank you that you are not the kind of king that the people expected. You are a much greater king, a king who was willing to die in order that we might live. What more can we do than simply follow your example then as our king? To place our lives in your hands, willingly surrendering them. So not only we might live, but others might live too. That others could see the beauty of the cross. Take the spotlight from us and glorify your name. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.